Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Robert, you and I both play pretty violent video games and enjoy them. But none of us are violent men. And I'm, I'm kind of curious about this. I mean, I spend a good 30 to 40 minutes a day just chilling out playing Titanfall and shooting a bunch of stuff, <laughs> you know, and I find it relaxing. It's totally predicated on war and violence and like the mechanics of the game, like have like, there's like kill executions and stuff that are, you know, supposed to make it more thrilling or whatever. But like, I get like a sort of Zen quality of like uh, clearing my mind from doing it. Yeah, it's interesting to take it apart. I mean, it's true. I've I've never thrown or taken a punch in my life. I've uh, never had a like a true interest in personal martial arts, except you know maybe as just a a possible way of like exploring your body awareness. I, I could see the the appeal there. Yeah, violent media has always been present in my life. I, I write violent things from time to time. I've always been a fan of uh, of the uh, simulated yet impactful theater violence of professional wrestling. Uh, yeah. And it, it does make me wonder to what extent is there like this innate violent aspect of, of, of humanity that finds its way out in these forms. I mean, I also ask these questions when I observe my, my five-year-old son, I'm around him all the time. I, I don't know to what extent the influences of other children play into his, uh, his, uh, his demeanor, but but I know that he digs mostly sweet things uh, at his age. He likes animals. He likes Totoro. And yet he easily took to dinosaur violence. Oh. Uh, and uh, he likes to climb on me in a manner that feels kind of wrestling-esque. And he's taken to sort of punching me, uh, but he's not – he doesn't call them punches. He's, he pretends that his fists are dinosaur eradicating asteroids. <laughs> and he'll go, asteroids falling. And then he uh, he's sort of like – pummels me with them I like lightly that your kid is acting out like mass extinction level genocide with a punch that's pretty amazing yeah like the first time you watch ponyo another miyazaki film yeah, yeah. He, he was a little upset because ponyo's dad was a little too serious yeah and granted he's voiced by liam neeson in the uh, the version he's watching but he got upset over that and had to grow to where he could watch ponyo but and but yet dinosaur eradication uh, via um, extinction event he's totally on board yeah well i imagine like he's seen skeletons in museums and stuff like that of dinosaurs so he's oh, got yeah. a firm grasp on that yeah well you know i've been thinking a lot about this lately not just your son <laughs> and and like the progression of violence but just violence in general mm-hmm. it's been in the news lately and i'm saying that now and I suppose you could say that at any period of time, right? There's been violence in the news recently. Yeah. It, it just feels like it, it's, it's omnipresent and it, it's been kind of disturbing me. So a friend suggested that I read Steven Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature for reassurance. Um, because essentially the premise of this book is that the world is actually less violent than it used to be and things are getting better in terms of violence, but slowly. Uh, it doesn't seem like it in the present because the media's attention is very much on the sort of like it bleeds, it leads news, right? So, of course, like there's constantly going to be stories about shootings or bombings or fires or, or knife attacks, right? And this kind of stuff is pretty disturbing and upsetting. And, and in a, I think in a cynical worldview makes you think like, oh, gosh, like we are just, you know, bent on utter self-destruction, 
But Pinker's book actually makes a really good point that we're not and that there are a lot of ways in which we're rising up out of that. Now, you're probably asking, some of you may be asking yourself, who is Stephen Pinker? Well, he's a Canadian-born American cognitive scientist, psychologist, linguist, and popular science writer. His name has come up a time or two on the podcast. I think, uh, what was it, uh, euphemisms, I think, was, were one of the, the recent things. Okay. Uh, we were discussing euphemisms in Pinker's uh, writing. He talks about euphemisms in here in relation to ideology. So we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit. And actually this episode, this is like a meta stuff to blow your mind episode because I feel like we're really zooming out big picture looking at, uh, human biology, evolution, philosophy, and, uh, very specifically neuroscience in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it touches on many episodes that you and Joe and I have have done in the past. So we'll be bringing in stuff from that as well. Yeah, we're going to be zipping down the highway here. And along the way, there are going to be some exits that look very interesting. In some cases, those are avenues we've explored before. In other cases, they're avenues that we can explore in the future. So let us know and we'll either direct you in the right direction or record uh, a new episode that lines up with that area. So uh, just up front, I should establish that this book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, is massive. It's like 800, 900 pages long. So there's no way we could do an episode that would be of like normal length Mm -hmm. for you to listen to where Robert and I discuss this entire book. It's just too big to do that. So for this episode, we're really honing in on a section that he refers to as inner demons. And this is where he explains why human beings are violent. And he does a really good job of doing it by doing this massive literature review of of human existence and sort of how we've applied violence over time, but also what we've learned about violence through various research methods. Uh, we're going to touch on the other stuff that's in the book. And like Robert said, like if, if some of it comes up and you say like, oh, well, I would like a full episode on that. You know, we may gloss over it here, but talk to us and maybe we'll be able to do something in the future. So he starts off with doing this overall huge data analysis, basically. I think it's like the first six chapters of the book where he essentially looks at the course of human history and says, yeah, violence is a major part of it, and it seems to be very specific to our species, but it doesn't have a fixed rate. So violence isn't like a human urge in the way that sex is or hunger or sleep. And he says, in fact, if you look at the data presented Violence has actually declined over time, and there's plenty of evidence that human beings are, in fact, averse to violence. So, for instance, uh, this is something we've talked about on the show before. It comes up in the office uh, a little bit, too, that there's an example that most soldiers in war don't actually fire with the intent to kill during wartime. This observation comes from the Second World War and from historian and U.S. Uh, Army Brigadier General uh, S.L.A. Marshall. And he reported the firing rate was 15 to 20 percent. And out of every 100 men engaged in a firefight, only 15 to 20 actually used their weapon. And then in Vietnam, for every enemy soldiers killed, more than 50,000 bullets were fired. But uh, we, we have to point out that some critics have charged that Marshall's observations were more observational uh, than a true science yeah. scientific study. And others have been less kind. Yeah. Uh, so it's, I mean, you can, you can look at that and maybe like if you're worried about the amount of human violence that's going on in the world, you can say, well, that's an encouraging sign, right? Right. And, and I, and I should also point out that this is just one of the many, uh, examples that Pinker uh, draws upon. And so he's not basing everything just on this, uh, on this thing about, uh, kill stats. 
Uh, and in general, when we're talking about Pinker's argument that violence is going uh, going down, he is talking about overarching statistical uh, evidence and just in the, the broad uh, picture of human culture. Obviously, an individual human is still capable of staggering cruelty and violence. We know the examples. We preserve the examples in our cultures like specimens on a shelf. Mm-hmm. But again, we have to come back to what does the larger picture say? What are the larger trends for humanity itself? And so for evidence of human violence, Pinker actually at first turns to one of the, an unlikely uh, area that I would think of. But actually, when you brought up your son earlier, it makes sense. He looks at two year olds as being the most violent stage of humanity, basically talking about and you would know better than I do. But, you know, that like at that age, we're thrashing around a lot. We're more likely to get angry at the drop of a hat or burst into tears and and really like uh, kind of uh, exert like uh, dominance and revenge kind of tactics over small, petty things. Yeah, I don't know. It's a difficult one to rule on because I I just have the one child to to base my, my observations on and it and every kid's going to be a little different maybe um, pinker just had some really rough kids yeah i don't know i mean when the, i guess that one of the things is is when emotional responses are coming online for young children there are less filters yeah so when they feel mad over something they feel it and then when they feel happy about something they just feel it and so you observe these these for what what for an adult would be just crazy mood swings yeah. but for a child like that's the palette they're they're painting with but even when you look at the statistics related to adults, it gets a little bit scary in terms of how much we fantasize about violence. 70 to 90 percent of men and 50 to 80 percent of women in a study, and these were all college students, admitted that they fantasized about killing someone. Uh, and this kind of gets into the sort of idea, like the general idea that bad people actually do what good people dream about doing, right? And this is why we have this violent fiction and fun, mm-hmm. right? Like our video games where we're shooting everything or we're watching horror movies or action movies or whatever. I think, I think the, the language here is very important. Like when we use terms like fantasize. Yeah. That, that makes it sound like you're like, oh, the, the revenge fantasy on my head here is just, I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm really getting off on this vision of me, uh, uh, punching that guy in the face. Yeah. Whereas, uh, and we'll get into this more later on, but if you view it as a sort of mental simulation, if you're thinking of the things that I could do in response to this, uh, you know, this individual, uh, ticking me off or offending me in somewhat, some fashion, yeah. of, of all the possible things I can do, punching them is one of those things. And here is how it might play out in my mind. Here are the pros, here are the cons, here's how it might make me feel, yeah. but then here's how it might feel to, to get arrested. So if you look at it from that point of view, it's like it's not it's not as creepy and weird as fantasizing about violence. It's more like, yeah, your brain knows that violence is always an option. It's just to what degree does your brain say that it's almost always never worth uh, the effort? Yeah. And Pinker later, you know, goes on to describe that as sort of one of our angels rather than our demons is the ability to rationalize risk assessment, essentially, whether or not the risk and reward is worth it for violence. But. Where it gets real, it, it, and it's really worth us zooming in on is the neuroscience. Because neurosurgeons have described something that's referred to as the rage circuit in the mammalian brain. And I'm going to walk you through this using a rat's brain as an example to start oh, off with. Well, did you bring that in in your pocket or yeah, on the cooler? Yeah, you know, well, I've got the rat, <laughs> and I figured I might as well take the brain out. 
Uh, so here we've got the rat brain. It has a pathway that connects three major structures in the lower parts of its brain. And these are similar to other mammalian brains like humans. A collar of tissue in there is called the paraaqueductal gray. And this is comprised of gray matter that is surrounded by a fluid-filled canal that runs from the spinal cord to the brain. And this is essentially where this rage circuit lies. It contains all the inputs that create our irritation, things like pain and hunger and blood pressure and our heart rate and temperature and our hearing. And so the paraaqueductal gray is partly under the control of our hypothalamus and it's regulating emotional, motivational and physiological states. It sits on the pituitary gland, which is pumping hormones into the bloodstream, regulating cortisol from our adrenal glands. And cortisol is pretty important here in terms of like the biochemistry. The hypothalamus itself then is regulated by the amygdala, which is applying our memory and our motivation, giving emotional coloring to our thoughts. So on top of all of this, this entire rage circuit is the cerebral cortex. And that patches into our eye sockets, literally, with the orbital cortex. These terms are going to be important later as we're going through sort of methods of uh, rage turning into violence. Now, I'm going to step away from Pinker for just a second to discuss uh, uh, some ideas by neurobiologist Douglas Fields. These are not ideas that are contrary to uh, Pinker's arguments. I think they line up rather nicely, uh, in fact, uh, as, as we continue on with the discussion. But Fields has written a great deal about the rage circuit as well, and he argues that violent behavior is often the result of the clash between the modern world and the evolutionary hardwiring of our brains. We all have triggers, he says, and we have to be aware of them in order to manage them. And uh, these are the triggers that he proposes. Uh, it, it spells out the word life morts. So I, that's, I didn't know that was a real word. <laughs> yeah, life morts. There's so many great band ideas already. Rage circuit, life morts. Yeah, it's true. Uh, life morts is L-I-F-E-M-O-R-T-S. That L is for life and limb. That's defensive aggression uh, as a trigger for your violence. Then I for insult. F for family or maternal aggression. So you're protecting your family, protecting your your, your child, or or at least that's the argument in your brain. Then there's uh, environment uh, territorialism. Then M for mate, which does not refer to British pub brawls, but rather mating <laughs> behavior and mating aggression. Then there's O for organization, the organization you're a part of. Uh, R for resources or lack of resources. T for tribe. And S for stop, and this one refers to being trapped, constrained, or cornered. Yeah, and as we'll discover with Pinker, that S part, the being trapped, restrained, or cornered, that's when humans can be their most violent. Mm -hmm. Quick quote from Fields. This is from a National Geographic interview. Uh, he says, you're not going to engage in violence and risk life and limb for a trivial reason. There are very specific triggers. So that's that's key here. Yeah. The, the Even though our violence within the modern framework is irrational in many cases. It's tied into uh, evolved responses that make sense in in the like the, the long history of human evolution and sort of the the the, the full temporal picture of the human being. Mm, yeah, and Pinker makes this point, and I, I I'm going to cap it at the end of our episode too. But that like the ability to define these things and recognize what's within ourselves that makes us capable of violence is sort of the first step towards stopping it from happening. Indeed. Uh, and so it, whether it's Fields, uh, model or it's Pinker's model, you know, it just depends on what sort of like linguistic thing you're applying on top of it, but both help. 
Now, Pinker also focuses on practicality of violence, and he says, when you move toward harming a fellow human, it must accomplish two things. It's got to at least increase the chance that the target will come to harm, and it will give your target and overriding goal of harming you before you harm them. This means we have to consider the consequences of our actions practically, like we were talking about earlier, risk-reward, mm-hmm. rationality. This is why most human violence is cowardly, stealthy, and preemptive, right? Yeah. So we tend to do it from afar or, you know, do it when somebody's not looking or or not be a part of it, right? Um, it's very rare that, like, somebody will be so psychopathic that they will, like, uh, just, you know, murder hundreds of people face to face, uh, because the, the human averseness to that violence is biological. It brings to mind all these examples as generally from our fiction where like one character demands that the, the villain fight them fair and square. Right. And that, yeah, yeah. this is generally not what we do. We're all about, uh, taking advantage and having the upper hand. Oh yeah. And there's absolutely evolutionary reasons for that too. Uh, another component of that that Pinker brings up is something that he refers to as forward panic. And this is when humans face an opponent in a long state of apprehension and fear. And then when they can catch that opponent in a moment of vulnerability, it leads to just utterly savage violence. This is human beings at their worst. So going back to that uh, model that Fields has earlier, that's when you're trapped or restrained or cornered, right? And you've got the opportunity to break free from that and that you just see human beings just go into just utter carnage then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is basically the, the whole idea of the Purge series, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it, I hadn't really thought of it before, but like those speak to sort of a, a real like inner... uh Quandary of human violence. Yeah. So he also argues, though, that the way that we get away with that in our own heads is because we have something called a moralization gap. And this is where we create narratives of victims and perpetrators and they diverge and only really a neutral party can see how they diverge from one another. So it's really kind of self-serving thinking that's a form of cognitive dissonance. And we develop all kinds of mental strategies of self-deception to help support it. Subsequently, this quirk in psychology means no one thinks they're evil, right? Like you, you hear, you, Think about that in the world, like people who are described as villains. No one sits around and thinks, I'm evil, I'm doing evil, right? They all think that what they're doing is innocent and that they themselves are long-suffering victims within their own narratives. So they always think they're acting morally. And Pinker reminds us here of Hannah Arendt's uh, infamous term, the banality of evil, when referring to the ordinariness of the Nazis' atrocities during World War II. It's worth remembering this when you're looking at our storytelling, too, right? Like whether you're making a story or watching a movie or reading a book, even the worst bad guy has justifications for why they think what they're doing is right, you know? And so when when we tend to watch fiction, it's just like this guy's just evil for the sake of being evil, at least in this current day and age, that's not necessarily engaging for us, right? Right. Yeah. You need some idea of their motivations and why they view their actions as righteous. Yeah. Um. And again, this all makes perfect sense if you look at things from a life morts standpoint. Uh, the triggers are there. They're evolved to enable survival. And what you can think of is the temporally average human, the tribal hunter-gatherer, the hominid. All of this culture business is relatively new. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, a couple other terms I want to establish up front uh, for Pinker before we get into what his uh, quote-unquote demons are. Another thing that he describes uh, within the brain is the seeking system, and this runs from the forebrain through a bundle of fibers in the middle of the brain to the ventral striatum, which we call the reptilian brain. It was discovered in rats when psychologists realized that if they stimulated it with an electrode via a lever, the rats themselves, they would hit this lever it would stimulate the electrode in their own brain. And what they would start doing is hitting the lever over and over and over again, stimulating that part of their brain until they became utterly exhausted. And these connections are actually two-way. They're not top-down. So Mm -hmm. all these components in the brain, they're talking to each other. The neurons within are signaling each other with the neurotransmitter dopamine. And this motivates animals to achieve goals. For instance, hunting. Uh, there's actually also a fear circuit that is uh, theorized, and it's connected to the rage circuit. And some extreme fear, so this goes back to what we were talking about, about being you know, caught or trapped. Mm-hmm. Uh, extreme fear will trigger an enraged defensive attack or violence. So there you go. Likewise, there may be another motivational system that triggers violence that uh, is referred to here as inter-male aggression or the dominant system. Basically, the idea here is that the seeking system in our brain leads males of a species to willingly seek out aggressive challenges with other males. And this sometimes also leads to blind rage. Now, the difference here between the rat brain that I've got here in my hand and our human brains is that these structures are enveloped by large, bloated cerebrum. The, for humans, we have this big cerebrum surrounding all of this stuff. And, and it's taken up by the frontal lobes, which possibly contends with our rage and fear with things like restraint, prudence, and morality. And this is where Phineas Gage comes up. Good old Phineas Gage. I can't imagine <laughs> how many episodes, if you go back through the Stuff to Blow Your Mind catalog, he comes up as an example. Yeah, Phineas Gage. He comes up, comes up quite a bit. This was a... A uh, 19th century individual, there was a freak railway accident that blasted a crowbar-like tool called a t- uh, tamping iron mm. up through his skull. It entered uh, under the left cheekbone and exited through the top of his head. And it basically gave him a uh, a frontal lobotomy. So when I was in high school uh, for D.A.R.E., they made T-shirts for all of us that uh-huh. had Phineas Gage's skull with the railway rod shooting through it. Dare? You mean to, to keep a kid off drugs? That yes, yeah. because it was a demonstration of what your head was like when you were drunk or when you were on certain kinds of drugs. So it's supposed to be these T-shirts that would <laughs> remind you, like, if you drink and you drive, you're just going to be like a guy with a with a rod through his his head. They were like, I thought it was kind of cool at the time, but like I look back on it, it's like this really morbid example to give kids. Yeah, like that's that's not what it's like, kids. It, it also it makes me imagine like a. Uh, uh, you know, in, in a local evening news uh, story, kids uh, call it gauging. They're blasting <laughs> right. uh, tamping irons up through their skull in order to get high. Well, if they were doing that, they would have to make sure that they actually destroyed the orbital cortex and the ventromedial cortex, because that was <laughs> what is theorized to be destroyed in Phineas Gage's brain, which led to these unchecked emotions he was experiencing. So the orbital cortex is actually adjacent to something called the insula, and that registers our physical gut feelings. This is when you say something like, uh, you've got a physical trigger, like, my blood is boiling when you're angry. This is coming from the insula. But when you 
scan the brains of people who are prone to violence, especially those with antisocial personality disorder, the orbital regions, those are shrunken and less active. But when you compare this to somebody like an impulsive murderer, you find that their orbital cortex is actually malfunctioning. So it's not smaller, it's just not working the way it's supposed to be. And so it seems that this is our major inhibitor of violence, the orbital cortex. And certain acts of violence are weighed as being justifiable by our brains. So for instance, let me give you a scenario, Robert. What if uh, there were five people on a train platform and you could see that they were going to be run over by the train? The only way you could stop the train was to push another person in front of the train and derail it. Oh, well, this is this is a classic um, uh, moral problem, right? Right. Well, you have to choose whatever benefits the most people, right? Yeah, it's very Spock, right? Yeah. The needs of but the many outweigh the But at the same time, I refuse to few. murder anybody. Exactly. Yeah. So you get into this quandary between the logic of it and the, the humanity of it, right? And we react against this with our amygdala and our orbital cortex. And, and you have like a more utilitarian mode of thinking, like let's call it the Spock mode of thinking. That's your dorsolateral cortex, where our intellectual abstract problem solving is done. All right, we got all that out of the way. We've covered the brain pretty thoroughly. Let's take a break, and when we get back, we're going to get into the actual demons that uh, Pinker has defined here, the five things that make us violent. All right, we're back. It's time to summon the five demons. Yeah, get <laughs> get out your uh, pentagrams and your, your salt. No, oh, they're not those kind of demons. Yeah, they're not the fun kind. Uh, but I guess we can imagine, uh, we can imagine what their forms might look like. Yeah, it, it works very well within Pinker's, uh, format for this book because, you know, the, the title, The Better Angels of Our Nature, the idea is that, uh, after he presents these demons that we're going to talk about in this episode, then he presents the angels subsequently that we use to combat these demons that keep us from being as violent as we could be. Yes. So the five uh, demons argument, this is a rejection of the hydraulic theory of violence. And uh, the hydraulic theory is is basically what I was uh, bringing up earlier when I was saying, oh, do I do I play violent video games because there's a inherent violence in my body and this is the necessary escape valve? Yeah. yeah the, the hydraulic theory is simply that humans have an inner drive to violence, a bloodlust that has to be satisfied one way or the other. And this is a um, this is a rejection of that argument. Yeah, that's Pinker's main thing is that we are not, there's no actual single psychological root that makes us violent. In fact, he says there's five things. There are predation, dominance, revenge, sadism, and ideology. And we're going to go through each of these and kind of touch upon Pinker's, you know, definitions for why these are the things that make us violent. Ooh, I'm envisioning this pack of demons right now with their uh, grotesque bodies that would, in there. That'd be a fun project yeah. for stuff to blow your mind, fans, if you wanted to draw our uh, five demons of violence for, for Pinker's setup there. I like it. So predation, I'm imagining that's going to look something like a predator, of course. It's going to have, like, the dreadlocks and the weird uh, uh, <laughs> uh, spider mouth. <laughs> yeah, the mandibles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Well, what... Pinker means by this is that it's a use of force as a means to an end. And it's usually deployed in pursuit of a goal that's set up by that seeking system part of the brain that we mentioned earlier. So, for instance, when you're hunting for food or sport, that's literal predation, right? You're preying upon another species. There's a certain amount of empathy that we have with prey as well in many cultures, right? Like a lot of cultures revere the animals that they kill for their food. 
Yeah, look no further than the ancient horned gods of chaos, unpredictability of the hunt. And you can look, too, to the deer stickers you see on the back of trucks that clearly belong to to deer hunters, Uh, the trophies they put in their homes. And perhaps, this is kind of a stretch, but maybe even the weird anthropomorphized uh, mascots of barbecue restaurants, yes. you know, like the talking yeah. pigs and pots. You stuff. brought this up a couple of days ago in one of our uh, company meetings, and you were 100% right. Every time I drive past a barbecue place, I am confounded. The logos are either uh, pigs that look like they're like so excited to be about to be eaten or like they're about to eat themselves. Yeah, they're like eating ribs from their own body. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like they're, they've got knives and forks pointed at their bellies and they're grinning. It's the strangest thing. But you're right. It's kind of like our modern version of uh, sort of, uh, you know, honoring the food that we're eating. Yeah. But Pinker argues when you've got this chasm between the perpetrator's perspective and the victim, so you don't have that kind of honoring, it makes it a lot easier to conduct predatory violence. And so this is when atrocities are committed and we say, how could they possibly do that, right? Our empathy is actually outweighing the predatory perspective. And this is why it helps for perpetrators themselves to be able to see their victims as quote-unquote vermin or morally disgusting, right? We talked about the moralization gap before. That's where it comes into play. They basically convince themselves, well, these people are less than me, and they're deserving of this. Yeah, it's that it's the act of othering that we, I mean, we still see in many cases today. I mean, really, we see it all over the place. Like, to, to whatever extent you can make the other party uh, less human yep. and, and and more of an alien entity, then, then more becomes permissible towards them. Tying back into Pinker, demonization. Mm-hmm. So cr- turning them into demons. Now, he also talks about positive illusions as being this sense where we have, uh, we think, oh, well, we're lucky or we're super capable or we can justify ways that make it easier for us to be predatory, right? We usually exaggerate ourselves as a useful tool when we're facing a rival. And, the, you know, the reason why is like if the world didn't have these positive illusions, there might only be violence when two rivals were closely matched because mm-hmm. let's face it, they're not always matched equally. So an example of this works when you look at war, right? So Perfect example, Napoleon and Hitler both trying to invade Russia. Like these, those were obviously difficult odds, but they were countries that initiated wars and ended up losing them. And here's what's interesting. When you look at the statistics, countries that initiate wars, they lose them 25 to 50% of the time. So people and nation states get into fights that they can't win all the time. Huh, and this is based on their bravado, buying into their own hype. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Now, leaders can totally overestimate that bravado, and that's what leads us into this. Pinker also calls this the Lake Wobegon effect after a a Prairie Home Companion and Garrison (laughs) Keillor, because the idea here is that everyone assumes that they're better than average. So when you ask the, the, you know, the general populace and you say, are you average? Are you lower than average? Are you better than average? Everybody says they're better than average. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, especially in America, that's the idea of uh, American exceptionalism, right? I mean, everybody's. Everybody has the potential for greatness. Nobody is locked into a particular caste. 
So this leads us to the second demon on our shoulder, which is dominance. And this is essentially our drive for supremacy over our rivals. And it's tied back into that brain part that Pinker was talking about earlier, which is the inter-male aggression. Here's the thing, though. It's easy to hear that and think, oh, well, men are only violent. But actually, it's not gender exclusive. It's just that men tend to exhibit these qualities for biological reasons we'll get into. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the basic idea is that for the, the when you look at the the broad history of the human species, you have a situation where the males the males are the males have the body for violence, and then in turn they have more of a brain for the violence. They're more wired for the for the physical violence. Right, right. So if you look at homicides, the largest motive for them in all altercations is trivial in origin. It's usually things like somebody insulted me or they accidentally jostled me. But the participants, they actually behave as if there's more at stake, which leads to murder. Uh, and this kind of violence, it acts as a way to prove dominance so that you, as sort of like an alpha, are challenged less, right? The goal here is actually a spreading of information by by showing that you're the stronger one. Hopefully, the you know the crowd will see this and they will spread it along so that you're challenged less often. Studies actually of American street violence show that young men who have a code of honor are more likely to perpetrate violence because that code of honor sort of helps them with the moralization gap. Likewise, if there's an audience presence, that doubles their likelihood that they're going to be violent because that audience will help spread that information. Now, this calls back to the episode that Joe and I did uh, where we interviewed Franz de Waal, where we talked about primates and how primates will fight with one another, but then after, they'll reconcile. And DeWall's theory was that this is because their long-term interests are bound together. So primates actually do their own version of rationalization. And with uh, bonobos, the the reconciliation often takes uh, a sexual form. Yeah, yeah, that came up as well, I believe. Now, that's a good point to bring into the gender difference here, which is that, okay, men yes, are far more violent and they are more likely to value their professional status and to take greater risks due to overconfidence. This is actually thought to be a product of evolution as males can reproduce more quickly than females. So they're competing for sexual opportunities. In the male brain, there's a nucleus in the anterior preoptic portion of the hypothalamus that is twice the size of a female's. And there are so many receptors in the system that are for testosterone, which is actually five to ten times more plentiful in men. That makes sense to us. But the fact that the receptors are for that leads you to understand why men can be more violent. Now, biologists aren't actually convinced that testosterone is fully to blame for male aggression. Instead, they think that what it does is it prepares men for the challenge of dominance, getting back to this this demon, the secondary demon here of dominance. It's, it's getting us ready for that challenge. Now, Fields, uh, he, he pretty much backs all of this up. And he, he also points out, though, that this is all a double-edged sword because certainly 90% of inmates are male, but 90% of Carnegie Institute medals for heroism have gone to men as well. Now, they're, you can, you can te- tease that apart in sure. various ways. Uh, but uh, he, he said, again, you can attribute much of this to evolution uh, of male and female brains. That's how we evolve. Men have the body, greater strength, size for violence, and then therefore they have the brains to use it. So Pinker actually argues that this is 
a bad scenario when you've convinced yourself of your sort of grandiosity, right? Your bravado. If you have too much self-esteem, you're more prone to violence. So people who are narcissistic and think well of themselves, but out of proportion with their actual achievements, those are the people you, you should be worried about in terms of dominance and violence. Uh, this is a trio of symptoms that Pinker says can actually make for a political leader that is a tyrant. And he says these are grandiosity, the need for admiration, and a lack of empathy. But through our identities as members of social groups, we actually see our dominance play out in less violent ways. And this is one of the ways that we sort of defeat this, right? We've got sports teams or political parties, for instance. And this can also lead to attitudes such as racism and other discriminations, right? The idea of pitting social groups in one way or another against each other. People, to varying degrees, harbor ultimately a motive for social dominance. And the idea here is that the group that they belong to is part of a hierarchy, and they want their group to always be on top in that hierarchy. So Pinker's arguing that maybe social dominance itself might not be about race, per se, but more about what he calls coalition, where groups have evolved together and they band together. And he brings it back to that part of the brain again, intermale aggression. And he provides evidence that racism is actually more likely to target minority men than minority women. So he provides some studies in this book showing that that is actually the case. So racism's more likely to take place between men of different races than between a man and a woman of different races. Now, this becomes especially deadly when you combine it with nationalism. So that's basically a welding of tribalism. It's a cognitive conception of the group that you belong to, and it's the political apparatus of the government that we belong to, right? You combine all these things together, and this can lead to the conviction that one's nation has the right to greatness, that it, it deserves to be great. It deserves to be on top of the hierarchy. Any lowering of that status is explained away as malevolence, and it's applied to either an internal or an external foe. Now, Pinker, he comes out with sort of like a positive take on this, and he hopes that dominance will actually be tempered by the civilized institutional systems that we exist within. So he actually says the governmental part, hopefully that and laws and, and et cetera, will, will keep us sort of on track and keep us from being violent. He says inroads for women together with cosmopolitanism will help as well, and Having a scientific understanding of these biological processes will hopefully make us more self-aware about where our violent urges for dominance are coming from. So to a certain degree, it's the idea that uh, that hopefully the thing that we will want dominant and the way the thing that we will, will push all of this longing for dominance into will be more positive uh, international models or species wide models for what we can be. As yeah, a, as a people, I think that's where he's going with it. And in, in the latter sections, which we'll touch on at the end mm -hmm. of the episode, but the sort of angel sections, both feminization and cosmopolitanism are listed as being factors there. So let's cross our fingers and hope that's the case. And he definitely provides evidence throughout the book where, you know, th this episode isn't about that. We can't cover everything, but the steep drop in violence over the course of history is is definitely on display in this book. It takes him a good six chapters to show it, but there's a lot there. All right, let's summon the revenge demon, the, the demon that's all about uh, uh, driving us to pay back harm in kind. Uh, 
fired up by the rage circuit. Right. So this is the third demon. It is the urge for vengeance, and it's actually a major cause of violence. And what's kind of weird is we seem to celebrate it in our cultures, right? Like, everybody loves a good revenge story. Like, oh, yeah. I haven't seen John Wick yet, but everybody talks about that movie as being like, oh, it's the ultimate revenge film, man. It feels good, you know? <laughs> I don't know if it's the ultimate revenge picture, but it, you know, it's fun. And, a, and of the revenge uh, trope, the, the basic revenge pacing is something we can all easily hop on board with. Yeah, that's a narrative that we're familiar with. Mm-hmm. And and as such, it's actually the motivation for 10 to 20% of the homicides that occur in the entire world. When you take this to a macro scale, revenge is essentially the motive for things like terrorism, when nations retaliate against it, and then subsequent wars we engage in, right? So let's look at the neurobiology here. We get back to that rage circuit that we described before. Let's say an animal is hurt or frustrated, and it wants to lash out at its nearest like perpetrator. This is fed information from the temporoparietal junction, and that indicates whether the harm was intentional or accidental. Then the rage circuit activates, and it turns on the insular cortex, which gives us sensations of pain, disgust, and anger. And studies have also found that feelings of revenge actually light up the region of the brain that is associated with craving sweets, nicotine, or cocaine. So when they weigh the pleasure of revenge over the pain it might cause, it actually lights up the orbital and ventromedial frontal cortex, which we talked about earlier. So those frontal areas seem to really be what's keeping us from just going into blind, like Wolverine Hulk rage all the time. (laughs) Uh, And that is interesting, the idea of associating it with sweets, right? Because we, we'd speak of, in poetic language, like the sweetness of a revenge. Revenge is a dish best served cold. Like stuff <laughs> like that. Yeah, well, I mean, we have a lot of other uh, sayings about revenge, too, right? That uh, uh, there's the old Chinese proverb that if you set out on a course of revenge, be prepared to, to dig two graves. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it, which is thinking more with the front part of your brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah than the rage circuit. So... This all leads to the function of risk assessment and deterrence, which, you know, is what Robert's talking about with that proverb, to convince your rivals that they have any attempt to advance their interests at your expense will lead to such severe penalties that their gambit will end with a net loss. So this is essentially like applying capitalism to revenge theory here, right? Like like it, it turns it into sort of a net gain kind of situation, a risk-reward situation. But that really is how our brains weigh the factors involved. Yeah, I mean, when you start looking at... Um let's say, uh, you know, nuclear deterrence. Like, that's basically the whole argument there. It basically, uh, like any nation's uh, nuclear deterrent exists uh, to ensure that any nuclear attacker will have to dig two graves. Right, yeah, exactly. Uh, And this brings up uh, something that I think has come up on the show before, but I'm not sure. It's called the Prisoner's Dilemma Game. And we don't have time to go into the whole scenario here. Honestly, that would be a whole episode. But the result is essentially that people are more likely to selfishly defect from one another and get a greater punishment than they are for cooperating altruistically and getting a smaller punishment. So this is a a game of studies that has been run on multiple people, and every time it comes out the same. 
Theoretical models take that even further, and they find out that over time, in iterations, researchers can theorize that the long-term effects of revenge on humanity are pretty complicated. Uh, and that might be fun for us to explore in another episode, but essentially, most people employ what are referred to as tit-for-tat strategies and enjoy cooperation over the threat of revenge. So that seems like a good thing, right? Yeah. Now, this made me think immediately, what's the most popular superhero team in the world right now? Suicide Squad. Oh, (laughs) you're right. That's that's even worse. Uh, The Avengers, right? And Avengers insinuates that their motive, their goal is all about revenge, right? And that revenge primarily works as a deterrent if the Avenger has a reputation for being able to carry it out, right? So subsequently, this is why most, not Avengers like the superheroes, but just Avengers who are enacting revenge, they want the target to know that they met out the punishment, right? Well, I have a serious comments question then. How much avenging do the Avengers actually get up to? (laughs) And and is there like a ruling council that decides if the matter is vengeance worthy? I don't think so. <laughs> I think that's just a cool name that they plucked out of the air. But remember in the in the Joss Whedon movie, I think he felt like he had to justify the name. That's right. And they, so it was like when one of their friends were killed, that was when they were like, okay, now we're going to have our revenge. We're the Avengers. We have to avenge somebody. But for the most part, we don't have an entire heroic organization based around a, this often vilified but uh, but sometimes celebrated concept. No, but you know that would be a really interesting take on doing the Avengers. I think that Marvel <laughs> should hire you and get right on that. I, I like the idea of having like there's a council that's like uh the the Hulk and Captain America and Iron Man and Black Widow sitting around and they're like, well, I don't know, does it really justify revenge? Now revenge evolved to be a deterrent. Um, so then we have to ask ourselves, why is it so common in the world if the idea is it's supposed to deter other violence? Pinker again points to that moralization gap because people consider the harms that they're inflicting to actually be justified. Uh, and subsequently, law and government come into play as implements to keep our revenge in check. So maybe the Avengers need that. Uh, and hopefully we internalize this even when the rule of law isn't around to monitor us all the time. Uh, and real quick, he says other ways of curtailing revenge include broadening your circle of empathy from those who you're close to outward. So most of us are automatically empathetic with our family and our friends, but try being empathetic with people further out from you uh, or when your relationships are too valuable to sever. Also, he says a sincere apology can go a long way. Politically, we've actually seen a huge spike in apologies and reconciliations since the 1980s. It's really interesting when you look at the graph of this, like nations or like big religious organizations didn't used to apologize to each other. It's a relatively new thing, and it's essentially to try to keep the whole revenge factor from getting out of control. All right. Well, the demons of of sadism and ideology are, are standing outside their medals clinking, their their chains and whips uh, dangling. But we're going to take a quick break before we let them into our hearts. All right, we're back. What's that knocking on the door? Oh, well, that's sadism demon. Uh, I hear it, and it is full of a joy for hurting. Uh, now, here's the thing about sadism. Uh, it is inherent to human beings, but... It might just be a psychological quirk. So let's go through this and hopefully we'll find out that we're not all inherently sadistic. Yeah, and this is definitely one of those areas where 
this could be a topic unto itself, uh, but we're going to uh, we're going to run through it as best we can. <laughs> yeah. So to many of us, sadism is not just morally monstrous, but we're also baffled by it, right? Because there's no apparent benefit from sadism. Now, think about torture, for instance. Some people like to justify torture as being a, uh, a method of sadism that's worthwhile. For instance, if you have a ticking bomb scenario, right? A bomb's about to go off. The only way you can find out is if you torture the suspect and they tell you where the bomb is. But we actually find that it's seldom instrumental because victims will really say anything to just make the torture stop. Yeah. Now, you look at our past entertainment, right? It's full of sadistic acts. We've got the Roman Colosseum and other blood sports. And then you look at the history of serial killers. Now, here's where I'm not 100% on board with Pinker. He aligns serial killers in general with sexual gratification. And given what I know from researching the topic of serial killers for things here at work, that's not always the case, but maybe that's something we should go into in a different episode. Serial killers, though, they're they're not exactly new, right? They seem like they're a product of modern society, but it's been around for a long time. It's just taken other forms. Yeah, and I think it's it's one of those cases too where it's uh, maybe it's it's become harder to be really good at it, right? Uh, given uh, advances in society, and likewise. I guess the ones who are really good at it are so good at it, you never know they're serial killers. That's the, yeah. that, that, that's the scariest part, yeah. So Pinker's argument about sadism is that, and you can check yourself on this, and maybe you'll discover something about yourself and your sadistic or non-sadistic qualities, is that it requires two things. The first thing is a motive to enjoy others' suffering, and the second is the removal of restraints that allow people to act upon the motives to enjoy other people's suffering. So he boils this down to a couple different things. First of all, the macabre. That's when we have this morbid fascination with the vulnerability of living things. His example here is when you're a little kid and you pull the legs off bugs, right? Or uh, you're driving by a car accident and you slow down so you can try to get a look at it. That leaves a lot of room for interpretation. I, because yeah. there are versions of that where you can say someone's a morbid artist and but they're not necessarily hurting bugs. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or yeah. even the whole slowing down for car wrecks. If anybody that's ever done any any amount of driving on, on our the interstates, you like you know that people seem to be engaging in this to a considerable degree, enough to, you know, shut down traffic uh, in in the lane that is not directly affected by right. the wreck. So yeah, I think there's a there's a big tent there on that first uh, category. Yeah, I'll, I'll throw this in just as like a qualifier about this book, which I really like this book. But there are points where Pinker supplies a lot of evidence. He cites sources. And then there's points where he just kind of throws things out mm -hmm. where he's like, here's my take on the world. And I think this was one of them. Uh, now, he also pulls in two of the demons that we previously discussed as being part of sadism, dominance and revenge. Now, in the case of dominance, it's sort of a schadenfreude, right? Like, we like the idea of somebody we want to dominate falling down on a banana peel, right? Yeah. Like, it, it fills us with glee. Uh, and likewise, with revenge, there's this idea of justice, right? Yeah, so vengeance is served and justice is uh, is served. Exactly, well. yeah. You did a really good uh, imitation of Ghost Rider there. That's what I, <laughs> is, that, is that his catchphrase? I think it's something along those lines, yeah. <laughs> He's the spirit of vengeance. 
Now, Pinker, again, I think sexuality isn't exactly Pinker's strong suit, but he gets into sexual sadism here, too, and he argues that the circuits for sexuality and aggression are intertwined within the limbic system, and both of these respond to testosterone. So examples, for instance, include veterans who describe killing in war, and they say, like, it's an actual sexual release for them. Or the other example he gives is a... Uh, reports from SS concentration camps where commanders reportedly masturbated during floggings of prisoners. So he's making this argument that there's a there's an inherent connection between sexuality and aggression. He does it very briefly. I'm not 100% convinced along the lines of also that like all serial killers are doing it for sexual reasons. Yeah, I mean there's a there's a lot of room for uh for questioning and uh and, and elaboration there. I mean it uh, for for instance, you can you can take into account the fact that many people's different uh, kinks and fetishes involve essentially violent themes. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily violent people. I feel like Pinker is maybe going a little just surface level on this. Yeah, and he there are points where he sort of like brushes up against uh, sadomasochism and bondage, mm-hmm. but it like I got the impression that it wasn't a topic he was like intimately familiar with. You know, the, just I'm imagining Pinker at like a dungeon, right. br- literally <laughs> brushing up against people in a, a bondage scene, uh, and it's hilarious. But. So he actually says, "All right, we've got all these possible sources for sadism." Why then is it less common than all of these other forms of violence that we we end up with? Well, his his reasons are empathy. So, for instance, like when he talks about empathy, he's not just talking about feeling each other's pain or inhabiting their minds, but he's actually thinking about aligning your happiness with that of another being. And he says this is more like sympathy or compassion. Yeah, and uh, as we've explored in past uh, discussions about psychopaths in particular, there's this argument that that with most of us, the empathy switch is default on. Yeah. And with these individuals, it's default off, but can be turned on, can be employed mm-hmm. through the right, uh, you know, sort of training and mental exercises in the same way that we can we can and do find ways to tamper our empathy through, you know, othering and and. uh and the reducing of another person to something less than human. Right. So this is a perfect example of why it's important to be able to identify scientifically, like what causes these things so that we can then say, all right, we know what this is. We know the symptoms. Let's look where we think it is in the brain. And then you have to ask yourself, is it morally right to turn that switch back on? Well, to bring it, we're talking about demons. And if I know anything from uh, the Dungeons and Dragons monster manual, it's that, Knowing the true name of a demon gives you power over it. I think you just nailed the episode title. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Another thing he says that curtails this is cultural taboo, right? So mostly the world and its governments see torture as being immoral. That's Mm -hmm. why it's prohibited by the 1949 Geneva Conventions and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Humans also have a visceral revulsion and that inhibits us from hurting other people, right? So uh, just the sight or sound of seeing someone screaming in pain, it, it's enough to make primates averse to eating food. And this is a perfect point to bring up Stanley Milgram's experiment for evidence that participants were visibly distraught when they thought that they were electrocuting people they couldn't see, right? <laughs> you know, this this brings up something. So, so the primates in this study had trouble eating during this. Yeah. And yet, uh, I was in the theater with you at uh, Alien Covenant, mm. and 
I think people were eating popcorn the entire time. Oh man, I was like, yeah. In some of the more grisly scenes, like people's jaws being sliced off, and yeah, and I'm just like, oh, Howard, you just still taking in palmful after palmful of that uh, delicious popcorn. There is, you know, for me, there are certain horror movies that I can't eat during. Mm-hmm. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of those. Yeah. That movie does something, like somehow it taps into that visceral revulsion. Uh, and I don't know how it does it differently than Alien Covenant. But during Alien Covenant, I just felt like everything was obviously fake. Yeah. Huh. Um, but there are horror movies that certainly do that for me. Well, I will say it's, Alien Covenant was certainly very polished and uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre has that 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 feel to it that you're almost watching documentary footage yeah. that it could be real. And yet I'm sure there are people out there who have like a regular ritual of eating barbecue during TCM. So I, I no yeah, idea. that's that wouldn't surprise me. They probably do that at the Alamo draft. That house sounds once a like year. something Alamo <laughs> would do. Yeah. Um and you were talking about psychopaths earlier. So they've got this disabled inhibition against sadism. That's because their amygdala and their orbital cortex shows a blunted response to signs of distress. So if they see a person screaming, they're less likely to respond to it. Pinker actually argues that besides psychopaths, sadism actually has to be cultivated over time. And his examples include, for instance, when you have older prison guards who participate in torture because it's something they've gotten used to over time. Mm-hmm. Serial killers again, and then middle age crowds, not people who are of middle age, but crowds in the middle ages, uh-huh. uh, that they acclimatize to public sadism as a part of everyday life, right? Like torturing people in public or these coliseums where you'd feed people the lions or whatever. Right, right. So it, it, in a way, it, it, it ceases to be a taboo. Right. And then also, this makes me wonder about. Uh, about the cycle of violence as well. You yeah. Know, an individual being more likely to participate in the violence because some level of this was perpetrated upon them, uh, that might be a valid argument as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, you look at this, at least the sadism, and it says something about us that's both terrifying, but also a little hopeful for the reduction of violence in human society, which is, you know... W- Thankfully, we have this natural inhibition that's built into most of us. And thankfully, it takes most of us a long time to build up a tolerance to become sadistic. So this leads us to our final demon. Yeah, I see him right here. The ideology demon. This is when believers weave a collection of motives into a creed and then recruit others to carry out its destructive goals. And man, This could be a podcast in two of itself, so we're going to really boil this down quickly. Pinker's argument here is there's an important distinction because the body counts of history get way higher when large numbers of people actually work together toward violence. Now, what's dangerous about ideology is essentially it promises utopia, which prevents its believers from weighing that cost-benefit analysis that we were talking about in the front of the brain. Likewise, it paints its opponents as inherently evil and deserving of punishment. So, again, it gets around that moralization. Yeah, this is the classic holy war scenario. Totally. Pinker again turns to Milgram's experiment as evidence of what we're willing to do if it's part of our social understanding. So it's worth remembering that 65% of the participants in that study were willing to go all the way up to the maximum shock level. Yeah, just because they were being told to do it. Mm -hmm. 
And further evidence from uh, research by John Darley and Bib Latane's study on bystander apathy shows that people that might respond to an emergency as a single person will fail to respond to that emergency if they're in a group of people. Because if they're in a group, they assume, well, if nobody else is doing anything, the situation can't be that bad. Yeah, we there's an older episode that uh, I did with uh, with Julie where we get into this uh, at length. And it's, uh, it's it's interesting to to have that information and then go in and do a, a CPR training course. Yeah. Because they directly play upon that. The whole idea that if you... A, they're training you to be the person that actually steps forward and starts uh, uh, initiating CPR. Yeah. But then also, you don't just say, somebody call 911. You point to someone and you say, you call 911. Right. You have to be active and not passive. Right. And and it has and you have to be specific. Because if you just say, someone do it, then uh, the bystander effect is going to take place. And people are like, oh, I guess somebody's going to call 911. And everyone just stands around hesitating yeah. while time ticks by. And this sounds horrible, right? But at the same time, like, it's, again, it's worth recognizing, like, this is part of human nature. If we're aware of it, then we can do things like apply it in CPR courses so that we can save lives. Now, this leads to another famous experiment that, of course, is going to come up in this episode, the Stanford Prison Experiment. This is where participants were given faux roles as prisoners and guards. The guards quickly took their roles way too far, and they abused their power. The experiment had to be called off after six days for the safety of the people playing the role of prisoners. And this demonstrates that when a group of people is given power over another group, it can actually bring out barbaric behavior in people who would otherwise never display it. So Pinker wonders, have we actually progressed enough since these studies, since Milgram, since the Stanford prison experiment, that participants would be more likely to disobey orders or to take advantage of authority in these situations? So he's essentially saying, if we conducted those experiments today, would modern day, uh, you know, inhibitions, culture, politics, etc., keep those results from being as high as they were the first time around. Now, some people have replicated that, and and you can look at those studies separately. They're also in the book. He takes a look at something called the spirals of silence, and he says this is the phenomenon of people just going along with the crowd, uh, and even on violence, simply because they think, look, it's going to make other people in the crowd happy. So when you survey a group of people afterwards, after a violent act, the majority of them will say, oh, yeah, I realized at the time that it was unpleasant or what we were doing was wrong, but I wanted to make sure everybody else around me thought I was with them. So there's all kinds of methods in ideology that keep violence perpetuated. We talked earlier about the moralization gap, uh, euphemisms. You brought up euphemisms earlier as being a, a pinker thing. So he says euphemisms are one single way that our language and communication allows us to get away with being violent. Think of the difference between the terms collateral damage, ethnic cleansing, and just murder. Right. So the the sort of vagueness of those uh, former terms makes it seem a little bit more acceptable. He says there's all kinds of other ways that we sort of, you know, uh, methodize our ideology in violence. He talks about gradualism, uh, responsibility, how how distant we are literally from the violence as it's happening. In fact, this is one of my favorite quotes. He says, it's safe to say that the pilot of the Enola Gay who dropped the atomic bomb over Hiroshima would not have agreed to immolate a 100,000 people with a flamethrower one at a time. Yeah. 
So that's a really interesting take on the ideology aspect of violence. Uh, he talks more about demonization and dehumanizing victims and minimizing the harm that you're doing, relativizing the harm that you're doing, and falling back upon requirements of your task. So, for instance, when people make the argument, oh, well, it was just my job or I was only following orders. So this leads us to the angels. Pinker says he thinks the vaccine here specifically for ideology is to have an open society where people and ideas are allowed to move about freely and no one is punished for having dissenting views. That sounds kind of like what we're in right now, right? Which might be why he argues that violence has declined massively over time. Now, what other solutions does he present us with? Well, like I said, the mere step of identifying these demons is supposed to be a step in the right direction, but it's followed by the four angels. And we're not going to dive as deeply into those angels, but let's talk about them briefly. Yeah, the demons are always more interesting. That's more true. High. But uh, yeah, you've uh, you've identified the demons, you've learned their true names, given you the power over them, and now you have to summon some angels to really, uh, you know, whack them. So uh, the first one is empathy, and we've recorded whole episodes on this one before, It's it's and it's pretty vital. This is the ability to feel the pain of others and or attempt to understand that pain, and it gives us the power to align our interests with the other person. And a lot of this comes down to our mirror neurons and theory of mind. It's a, it's a vital tool for navigating a world full of unknowable minds. We have to be able to put ourselves in their vicious heads in order to dodge and maneuver in this bone-slinging world of tribal horror. But, of course, that enables modern individuals especially uh, much more than mere Stone Age Machiavellianism, you know? Yeah. So it's not just, I have to know my adversary. It also means you you can know your friends. It means you can you have a better idea of, of what's going in the head of even the average you know person on the street some stranger that you'll you'll never know that you'll never even uh you know have exchange a word with but thanks to uh theory of mind you can you can contemplate what their position in their worldview consists of and then you can take it that step further and turn empathy into sympathy or compassion right. where you're actually tying your happiness into their happiness yeah that's the, the final form of this angel i think yeah. is it uh, as it, it's, it's pokemon, pokemon evolution, evolution. Yeah. <laughs> All right, the next angel is self-control. So, yeah, willpower. And this uh, ties into another key cognitive ability, uh, which is uh, known as chronesthesia or mental time travel. So it kind of comes back to what we were talking about with revenge earlier. Yeah. We can weigh the outcomes of our intended or considered acts. And as such, uh, Pinker's point is that we can anticipate the outcome of acting out on our impulses and inhibit them as needed. So if the cost is too high, the risk is too great, then we can just tamp it down. And uh, this, like empathy, becomes even grander in the human condition. Because uh, in many cases, we can live entire lives, maybe not too happy lives uh, of, of lives, but we can live entire lives inhibiting perfectly natural impulses. Right. So, uh, you know, there's a... There's a there, there's solace to be taken in that fact. Right. Yeah. And this gets back to I mean, he mentioned a lot of these angels along the way in the demons, which is that the self-control part really is wired to the front part of our brains. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that we can take a little bit of uh, solace in, which is that, like, we're actually wired up to out rationalize the rage portion. Yeah. Now, the next one, the third angel is moral sense. So this governs uh, a set of norms and taboos that govern our interactions. This, for an everyday example, can be as simple as walking aboard an elevator 
and figuring out where you need to stand. It can be as simple as walking into a school dance, uh, an office party, or any other social setting and figuring out the the rules and the expectations. Where are people sitting? What are people wearing? How much food are people eating yet? And yeah. if they are, how much are they eating? You know, all these little things, these little calculations that most of us take for granted. Yeah, yeah. And this totally gets into, like, the institutional idea and even, like, ties back into ideology, right? Ideology is one of the demons, but in a way it's also one of the angels, right? Yeah. Because it supplies the moral sense and the cultural taboos for us to keep from being violent. This one touches on some of the discussions we had in our uh, Leaping into the Void episode where we talked about, you know, the the, the urge to jump off a building, the yeah. irrational urge, Uh uh, when you're, you know, in a high place, but it's it also also like I find myself in a, a gallery, for instance, and there'll be this famous work of art, and I could literally reach out, grab it, and start licking it. Yeah, and I can't help but think about it. I'm not actually, I'm not actually tempted to do it, but I keep thinking like, what's the worst thing I could possibly do in this gallery? So lick the painting, and uh, and there's something terrifying about considering it, or not even considering it, but just running that simulation in my mind. Yeah, but what's keeping you from doing it is probably a, a combination of your brain and the social uh, institutions around you, especially in the museum. Yeah, it's the it's the the two angels of uh, self control and moral sense are standing by me, holding me back. <laughs> Uh, and, and maybe uh, the fourth angel as well, and that's reason. This is the power to reflect, deduce, and, quote, guide the application of the other better angels of our nature. So reason's kind of the quarterback of, uh, if, I'm, if I'm using my sports analogy I have correctly. no idea. I'm the wrong person to ask, but, yeah, mm-hmm. I'll go with it. Yeah, the quarterback then uh, for the other angels and saying, all right, you run there, you run there, you hold him back so he doesn't lick the painting, and, uh, and empathy will be standing over there so he doesn't uh, judge the guard too harshly. Right. All right, and then on top of these angels, they don't have to go in and defeat these demons alone. They also have, uh, you could say, institutional uh, help from the five historical forces. And these, Pinker uh, argues, are the uh, exogenous forces that favor peaceful motives and are the forces that are largely responsible for bringing about a decline in violence. So the first force here, the first of the five historical forces that Pinker uh, presents is the Leviathan nation-state. So Leviathan here is a reference to Thomas Hobbes in his 1651 book, Leviathan, a book on statecraft and the structure of society and legitimate government. Yeah, he's not actually talking about a sea monster. Right. He means government. And uh, and in, in this case, in Pinker's argument, this is state uh, and judiciary that has a monopoly on the use of force. And yes, this gives it great power to abuse, but also to reduce tendencies for exploitive attacks and revenge. It can also dismantle self-serving biases that make everyone believe they're individually in the right. Yeah, right. Especially when you've got that moralization gap at at, uh, hand. Yes. Now, the next uh, force is commerce. Which, uh, which this one makes me think of, uh, you know, Wu Tang's uh, cream uh, <laughs> cash rules everything around yeah. me. Yeah, in dollar the, dollar bills, yo. Yeah, because Pinker here is arguing that uh, that that this is the positive sum game in which everybody can win. Trade and communication means that people are more valuable alive than dead, uh, and there's, so there's less need to demonize uh, and less need to destroy other groups and salt the earth because, at the very least, your cruelty will take a commercial form 
as opposed to a you know a a barbarically violent one. This is where we get those sort of like uh, libertarian arguments that like capitalism and commercialism is ultimately like the guiding force that's going to keep us civilized, right? Because it's essentially tied into that risk reward system that's keeping our brain from mm-hmm. devolving into just utter barbarism. Yeah, well, I mean, I, th- I think there's there's some some merit there. Now, you can certainly say that it can't act in isolation. It has yeah. to have these other elements, such as the next force, which is feminization. So this is the ongoing process by which cultures increasingly respect women. And Pinker argues that since males tend to be the violent ones or the more violent ones, that with the empowerment of women, feminized cultures move away from the glorification of war and they produce fewer, quote, rootless young men. Right. Yeah. And so as we're recording this, the movie Wonder Woman just came out and has been a huge hit. And you can look at that as like a cultural touchstone, right, of our society, at least progressing in the form of feminization. Now, there's obviously some pushback against that, too. But Pinker's argument here is that it's a good thing. All right. And the next one is cosmopolitanism. And this is just about literacy, mobility, mass media. All of it coming together to promote people toward uh, an understanding of other people and, quote, expand their circle of sympathy. Right. Yeah. Whenever I think of the term cosmopolitanism, I think of the idea of um, not adhering necessarily to the idea that you're a citizen of a particular nation, but that you're a citizen of the world and that you're in it together with all of humanity. And finally... The escalator of reason, and this idea is that the application of knowledge and rationality can force people to recognize cycles of violence in the world and see it all as as something that needs to be solved rather than one. And they may even come to the point of realizing that their own interests and privileges shouldn't always trump the interests of others. Okay. So, man, we've barely covered like half this book, but we we just flew through a bunch of it. So we've got the demons, we've got the angels, we've got the historical forces. This is basically like the primary layout for Pinker's big argument here. But not everybody agrees with this guy, right? Yeah, I mean, this book was, when it came out uh, several years back, was a, was a big deal and continues to resonate. And as I mean, we're discussing it because it has a lot of, of truth in it, and it, it, it does resonate, and it does give us perspective on, on how we're, we're behaving and functioning as a, as a culture and, and what direction we might be moving in. And... Pinker isn't the only one to make this claim or to have made it. Uh, Joshua L. Goldstein presented a similar view in Winning uh, the War on War, the Decline of uh, Armed Conflict Worldwide. That was also in 2011. And uh, both authors credit uh, John E. Mueller's 1989 book, Retreat from Doomsday, The Obsolescence of Major War. And you can trace similar concepts, uh, you know, the idea that we're getting, we're becoming more peaceful, we're getting further away from war. Uh, at least back as far as the 19th century French Enlightenment. Mm. Now, American analyst John Arquella argues uh, that uh, another major factor that could be playing a role in the reduction of global battlefield casualties is the stalemate imposed by the, the greater horrors of nuclear war. Now, Pinker certainly takes nukes into account, but he says that, hey, past uh, WMDs like poison gas, these didn't prevent more wars uh, and and so nukes alone are not going to do it either. Right. But of course, nuclear weapons are far more destructive. Destructive on a level that has has changed the balance of power. Totally goes back to that one sentence example that he had earlier about the flamethrower and the Enola guy. Now, one of the um, critics that I ran across was English political philosopher and author John N. Gray, and uh, I just want to read a, a couple of arguments that he made uh, regarding Pinker. 
He says, quote, no serious military historian doubts that fear of their use, and he means nuclear weapons, has been a major factor in preventing conflict between great powers. Moreover, deaths of noncombatants have been steadily rising. Around a million of the 10 million deaths due to the First World War were of noncombatants, whereas around half of the more than 50 million casualties of the Second World War and over 90% of the millions who have perished in the violence that has uh, racked the Congo for decades belong in that category. Hmm. Says we, we haven't had big wars chew up so many lives, but we've engaged in proxy wars. He says, quote, while it's true that war has changed, it has not become less destructive. Rather than a contest between well-organized states that can at some point negotiate peace, it is now more often a many-sided conflict in fractured or collapsed states that no one has the power to end. Wow. All right. That's not comforting. <laughs> he also argues that depending upon casualty numbers doesn't take into account the equal weight of lives lost say, under the boot hill of oppressive regimes and social structures. And he points out that the United States, for instance, may be, uh, depending on who's commenting, uh, considered the most advanced society in the world, but it also has the highest rate of incarceration. A quarter of all the world's prisoners uh, are tied up in that. And a disproportionately number of them are African-Americans. And then on top of this, many of the prisoners in question are mentally ill or they're aged, uh, or they're just uh, they're 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 unhealthy at this point in their lives. Right. So you have to ask yourself, how does that play out in this perception of violence? Uh, also worth noting, the U.S. has the largest military in the world by a considerable margin. All right. So things that we like really excel at prisons, mental illness and militaries. Yeah, I mean, basically, that's 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 kind of uh, Gray's argument here is is yeah. To what extent can war casualties alone be the uh, the metric for your uh, your discussion here? So Gray is like the cynical side of me again, taking over and saying, uh, "Not so fast, Pinker. The world's <laughs> a lot worse off than you think." Now, these quotes are from uh, from Gray's book, "The Soul of the Marionette: A Short Inquiry into Human Freedom," and there's uh, an excerpt from it uh, that you'll find on uh, on on the Guardian. Uh, dot com. I'll include a link to that on the landing page for this episode. Uh, it goes on for a bit, but he ends up talking about uh, the the Black Mirror of uh, of Doctor John D. Oh so, wow! Yeah, okay, so, so it, it's uh, it's worth checking out. Well, if you're if you're deep into stuff to blow your mind territory, that'll be an interesting connection. Now, another uh, note about war and violence. Uh, this is uh, from Ian Magazine's "Is There a War Instinct?" by evolutionary biologist David P. Uh, Barash. And he points out that, quote, violence is almost certainly deeply entrenched in human nature. Warfare, not so much. So hmm. he has this analogy that he, that, he talks, that he draws on where he's saying that violence is like a marriage and that war, on the other hand, is like arranging a wedding with the bridal shower and the bachelor party and, and all of this. Yeah. He says, that it's uh, quote, it's safe to assume that neither employing a photographer, serving a multi-tiered wedding cake, enlisting bridesmaids, nor trying baby shoe, tying baby shoes to the bumper of a newlyweds car spring from the human genome, although people are capable of doing all of these things. By the same token, plain old interpersonal violence is a real, albeit regrettable, part of human nature. War is even more regrettable, but it is no more natural than a bridal shower or the assembly line used to construct a stealth bomber. And he argues that Pinker exaggerates our pre-existing natural tendency for war. He argues that uh, recent anthropological studies from Douglas Fry and others prove that the predominant mode of human life, again, that sort of that you know broad uh, analysis of what it is to be a human being, 
that for most of that were nomadic hunters uh, and gatherers. Yeah. That war as a group-based lethal uh, use of lethal violence against other groups was almost non-existent for most of this time. It only emerged within the uh, the early agricultural surplus period and the and emerged with the rise of elaborate tribal organizations. And this is what allowed the warrior ethos and military leadership of sorts to emerge. So he's saying war has not always been with us. It's a recent phenomenon when you consider the full history of our species. So again, that seems like a positive thing. Now, we just hit you with a lot, listeners. Yeah. That was like that was like a sledgehammer of information about war, human nature, and violence. Mm-hmm. But we you know, I think based on like this experience that I'm feeling, I think other people are feeling it too, just like every day. It's like, oh gosh, like all these horrible things are happening. Is this is this what we're just destined to keep doing to each other forever? Pinker's argument is at least no. Like we're proceeding, we're finding ways and we're understanding how our brains work so that this will eventually slow down. It ha- it already is slowing down and probably won't ever stop, but it will be minimized. Yeah, I think the two critics that I mentioned here, I think they make valid points and I think they're it's important to consider the criticism. Yeah. But at the same hand on the, on the same hand, I really like Pinker's argument and uh and not just because I feel like I have to I have to live and act as an optimist and I can't really live and act as a pessimist. But <laughs> yeah. but I, but I do think he makes a, a a convincing argument for the most part. So listeners, are you convinced? Do you think Pinker's got it right? Do you feel better? I feel a little bit better. Pinker, yeah. that that person who let me borrow this book and said you should read this the objective achieved, like it did make me feel a little bit better. Um, so do we agree with this? Do we not agree with it? Maybe we agree with uh, Barash and Gray instead. Let us know. We are on social media where you can talk to us about all of your violent urges on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram. And as Robert mentioned, the landing page for this will be on StuffToBlowYourMind.com where we have all of our blog posts, all of our videos, and every episode of the podcast. Podcast. And you can always reach out to us the old-fashioned way. Shoot us an email at blowthemind at houseofworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.